Welcome to episode 137 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Andrew Boyd, writer, humorist, activist, CEO, that's Chief Existential Officer of The Climate Clock, and author of the new book, I Want a Better Catastrophe. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. Also, check out the videos on my new YouTube channel, The Climate Champions, with interviews with Jigger Shaw, Chris Black, Rick Hornfeld, 11-year-old podcast host of We the Children, Zach Fox Duvall, and a subset of this interview with Andrew. To rally us around a better catastrophe, Andrew is on a coast-to-coast roadshow. It's a cross between a TED Talk, Comedy Hour, Fireside Chat, Grief Counseling Session, and What Can I Do Workshop. He promises both laughs and a deep reckoning. On April 5th, he'll be in Bellingham, Washington. Hey, you might catch some improv while you're there. On April 6th, Seattle. On April 11th, he'll be in my neck of the woods in Portland, Oregon. And then he heads to California for the remainder of April before headed to the UK. Check out his complete calendar on bettercatastrophe.com. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Andrew Boyd, writer, humorist, activist, CEO, that's Chief Existential Officer of the Climate Clock, and he's out with a new book called I Want a Better Catastrophe. Andrew, welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm very happy to be here, Lee, and, and to meet you at a distance here virtually, yes. Now, I only got your book a few days ago. I skimmed it. I found it very, very good. I really liked it. I found that you didn't take positions only on one side of the coin. Right. You showed the different positions and why they made sense, depending on who you are and what you're thinking about. Yeah. I guess the purposes of the book is not just to weigh in and win an argument, but to sort of hold up the dilemmas that we're in the middle of, you know, and hold up the the many voices both inside us, right, that are battling... Yeah you know, without or the contradictions we're living out because we're trying to change a society, but we still need to live in it. We're in a, a kind of a predicament where there's no obvious single linear solution or answer to it. So there's there's lots of contradictions and lots of dilemmas. And so part of the book's offerings is to articulate those. So people kind of go, oh, I'm not the only one struggling with this. And now I understand this debate inside myself or this debate out in society better. Yeah, I say often on the podcast that my mood for the day sometimes depends on who I interview and what they say. If they're on the solvent side of the equation, right. then I usually feel better for the rest of the day. If they're on the we're doomed side, which is a very valid side as well, then I feel bad that day. Yeah. And you really present all of that in the book. 
So how will you feel after this then? Will you feel good and bad or, or badish or goodish? You know, what is the, <laughs> what mood will you be in after this interview? I don't know, because you really do present all the different yeah. sides, which is how I feel inside. Yeah. A lot of people feel that way. So that's, yeah, exactly. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? What made you say, look, I can write about a lot of stuff, but I'm going to focus on climate change. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I've been a, a, an activist my whole adult life. Many causes, you know, trying to, you know, battling sweatshops back in the day, you know, we acknowledged early in this call how old we are, you know, you and I, and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, defeating apartheid was an early struggle, trying to calm the nuclear arms race back when we were in the midst of a Cold War, trying to win more affordable housing. And when I was living in, in you know, various multicultural neighborhoods in, in Boston, you know, just the the list goes on, you know, trying to reform our electoral system so that big money doesn't have such a such a voice. Yeah, there's a lot of issues to get engaged in these days. The world is broken in so many ways. It's a target rich environment. You know, if you if you want to do something, you want to try to make a difference. You have lots and lots and lots of choices, uh, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, whatever. But, you know, in, in those causes, many of them are like, OK, here's the problem. Here's some possible solutions. Here's what we need to pull together our messaging, our people our influence, people with influence, our people in the grassroots, let's, and let's go do it. Let's go fix it. You know, and there was, it was, it was imaginable that you could fix this problem so that that problem would be history. With our climate crisis, it's less simple. It's more, much more complicated. We've already passed some of the red lines, you know, that we, that scientists have warned us not to pass. It's a civilization-wide problem, you know, that's based on sort of fundamental, you know, false assumptions, you know, infinite growth on a finite planet, to just to take one that, you know, is very familiar. I realized at a certain point, it's not the same kind of problem. In fact, maybe it's not a problem per se. You know, I realized climate catastrophe or impending climate catastrophe is not a problem we can fix, problem we can solve. It's more of a predicament we have to face, survive, navigate, mitigate, but it's larger than us in a way that we can't fix it to the degree that it goes away, right? It's going to be with us in one way or another. So I needed to find a new kind of hope for that, right? It's not a hope that you're going to win in the sort of discrete way that maybe we are used to. So it was, I had a crisis of hope uh, that led me to, you know, I'm doing a lot of climate activism in the last decade. So, you know, that was become my issue. Was there a specific thing that caused that to become your issue? It became very apparent to me that that was the issue as we were heading towards the Paris Climate Accords. And there was a big mobilization in New York City. I mean, I was aware of this and caring about it and, you know, working on it in various, uh, you know, I, I co-started a creative agency that did culture jams and, and, and creative media of various kinds. We made an ad called Exxon Hates Your Children and actually played it in Irving, Texas at the, you know, the media market right around the headquarters of Exxon and, you know, this kind of thing. Even made a little religious pamphlet about are you powered by God? You know, are you powered by the energy of the depths of hell, uh, you know, coal and oil that burns into the air? Or, or are you powered by the energy of heaven that comes from the, the wind and the sun? You know, so I would do, you know, these creative media things around climate. But it was really around the people's, what was called the People's Climate March, which still to this day is the largest single climate mobilization in history. 400,000 people in the streets of New York as a way to demonstrate global public opinion and a demand for a global climate treaty that we then got later uh, the next year in Paris. But that was a really key mobilization moment to get that treaty and also to build a more robust climate movement in the United States, particularly one that centers justice. 
It's not just white people doing their little environmental thing, but it's also communities of color blocking pipelines or incinerators in their neighborhoods and stuff like that. So it was a way for many strands of the environmental movement to come together into a, a climate justice framework that was very powerful. So that was a moment that it was like, all right, this is an issue of existential significance and deserves, you know, whatever I can bring to it, you know, that I've learned in my various decades of, of activist practice. So that's, that's where it really crystallized. And we ended up going to Paris, created this uh, global story sharing project called the Climate Ribbon that was hoping to move people through their climate grief to climate action by having them ask themselves a question, find their own skin in the game, ask themselves the question, what do you love too much to lose? You know, and write it on a ribbon, share it with others, find someone's answer to that, that moved you. I like that. Add that ribbon to your own wrist and become the guardian of that thing that is most sacred, most ult- of ult- ultimate significance to to someone else. And so, yeah, so uh, that project we took to Paris. So that's when it really happened. The climate clock, uh, as you say, which I am the chief existential officer of the CEO, was birthed <laughs> in the last you know three, three, four years. In addition to the book, that's where I am practicing my climate activism most strongly. What drives you day to day to keep the good fight going? Probably many different things. One is a bit of a, it becomes a habit, if you will, becomes a, a, a you know, a habit of mind. You know, it's like the world is broken. I have a mixed Jewish and Protestant tradition. And in the Jewish tradition, there's a commandment towards, towards social justice, but there's a sort of a pragmatic understanding that don't be so presumptuous to think that you can save the world, you know, but you must try. <laughs> it's a very, you know, <laughs> it describes how I feel every day. There you go. Yeah. So it's a very appropriate spiritual commandment. And in a, in a sense, it's a it's a modest one in a way in that, like, don't be so grandiose. You're not God, but it is incumbent upon you as a as a moral being, as a member of the tribe, as a member of your community to do all you can to to try to fix the world. And then you will make it better or you'll make it less worse. So that that motivates me. That just basic moral grounding, that basic sort of ethical principle. And, you know, just the emotional reaction you have to see people suffering that unnecessarily, to see the damage that we have done to the earth that does not deserve it to other species that through no fault of their own, you know, are being driven extinct by our irresponsibility. So uh, yeah, those kind of things, you know, keep me in the game. And then, you know, people may be outside the might look at activism, oh, it's such a drag, You it's so much work, you don't get paid, you have to go to these meetings. Uh. And yes, there's a lot of, you know, sure, there's a lot of drag there, but you also find your people, right? You find meaning and you find community. It challenges, you know, the way people run ultra marathons, right? They learn resilience, they learn skills, they become more into their best selves. Uh, activism in its best moments does that too, you know? It's a fire that shapes you for the better. So- those are many reasons, and I could go on. It would be interesting to push a little bit harder on that analogy of a marathon, because I do feel that it's a long race. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's any competition at all, but I guess a good marathon, you're only competing against yourself. Here, we're really competing against the clock. I mean, yeah. and the odds are that we won't be around for the end game to even know if we finished or how we finished. Yeah. No, we're definitely competing against a clock. Bill McKibben says, if we win later, we lose. We have to win now. You know, it's it's what we do now. We are in the critical decade. This decade will have consequences over geologic time. You know, if we're able to bend that emission curve down so we skirt under 1.5 degrees centigrade warming or even two or whatever, whatever degree we can bend that emission curve down 
will you know mean the difference potentially between extinction and survival the sooner we bend it the more impact it has because this stuff just adds up it doesn't just go away so when we reduce what we do sooner it matters that's one way that it's not like a marathon the other is i would say it's almost like a constant sprint but for a very long time yeah. because when i run a marathon I want to have a negative split, right? I want to finish stronger than I started. Oh, okay. But in this case, I really want to go out as strong as I yeah. can and keep it up for as long as I can. Everything we, yeah, the more impact we can have, the sooner, the more impactful it will be, right? So yes, that's exactly right. So we're running against the clock, thus the climate clock. When you meet people that don't believe the data, don't believe that there is this race against the clock, how do you try to convince them otherwise? Well, Interestingly, you can find common ground without winning that, you know, ideological argument. So, you know, let me just set aside the convincing them that climate change is happening, convincing them that humans are creating it, convincing them, yeah, you know, 97% of the scientists of, of, the, of the world, that consensus is actually real. You know, there's a lot of things to convince, but it's, you know, you learn in creative communications that always like crashing the gate isn't always the best way to make the argument. So I'll tell you a little story that I learned along the way of this book tour. So I've been in, you know, seven different places in the Northeast, including uh, Portland, Maine was a stop I was in about a month ago. It's a beautiful, fresh snowfall, went snowshoeing in the backwoods and all this kind of great stuff. And I heard a story in a small town outside of Portland, Maine, of a guy who was totally committed to the science, went to Dartmouth, you know, was a climate uh, engineer, blah, blah, blah. But he came back to his small town and found that there was a brown field that needed to be remediated that could contain uh, solar panels enough to uh, power, basically power most of the town's needs. So then he thought about it and he's like, how do I win the town council of supervisors over to this plan? And he decided he didn't need to mention the phrase climate change once in his argument. So he assembled all the data and he brought the, his brief before the council of supervisors and he made the case. This brownfield is a threat to the ecological safety of our community. We need to remediate it. We don't want our children being messed with by the toxic seeping into the ground. And if we put solar panels here, it is a cheaper and more reliable source of energy than our alternative that we have control over. We will have energy sovereignty in our town. And he didn't mention climate change once. And he won won the council over to it and the brownfield was remediated and the solar panels were built. And now the town is mostly powered by solar panel. And yet the cultural divide, it's a purple town, you know, there's Trump voters and people who respect the science, but they didn't have to agree on the things that have been made so polarized, wrongly so, but have been made so polarized uh, that you don't want to crash the gate and try and win the argument and say, you're wrong, I'm right. You know, you don't need to do that. You're saying, this will benefit all of us look at the numbers, you know, here's the spreadsheet yeah. on solar power. It's cheaper and more decentralized. So we get to control it. Here's the investments and here's how fast we'll pay it off and all that kind of stuff. Boom. Back in the day, I used to use hashtag red, white and blue and green too. Ah, nice. So I was trying to lead with the idea that, look, this is energy independence. This is something that we should be excited about doing for the individual, for the town, the city, the state and the country about having ownership, right? And having independence. Yeah. And green was an extra nice to have, both from a yeah. money perspective and from an environmental perspective. Well, you know, there's the famous joke of the, um, 
you know, the scene is a climate conference and, you know, people, the person at the front with the you know, PowerPoint is listing all of the benefits of making this transition off of fossil fuels to, to renewables. And there's a grumpy guy in the back saying something to somebody else in the back. And he's like, but what if it's a hoax and we create a better world for nothing? <laughs> you know, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of aspects of better without even getting into climate change. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Can you talk about the successes you're most proud of, whether it be current or in the past? Okay. So one little success that I'm currently engaged in is I'm, I'm on a book tour across the country and I'm not taking a plane. So I'm taking trains and uh, only trains. And um, here, I'll get you my Amtrak mug. <laughs> We're going to take a time out for the podcast now while we get the mug. So please stay tuned. Here's my Amtrak mug. Um, I'm doing the whole tour by Amtrak. Uh, and in fact, on Sunday, I'm getting on a train uh, that's like almost two days long from Wisconsin all the way to Seattle. It's called the Empire Builder. I've taken it once before back in the day. So that's one little success. It can be done. Amtrak is a poor excuse for a national national train train system, but it's much better for the environment than flying. And uh, so there's a little success there. Uh, if I can do it, other people can too. Maybe if enough of us do it, there's enough of a demand side reason for uh, America to get its act together like all other advanced industrial countries and have a excellent high-speed rail network, which we will need Really, it puts us at a disadvantage relative to other countries, and it's a it's a really important investment in our future. Countries as big as ours, like China, are you know building thousands of miles of high speed rail track you know every year. So that's one little success. I would say the climate clock is possibly the most potentially impactful thing that I've been engaged in. I mean, it is very ambitious. It is filling a need, as we talked about. We're not running against each other on this marathon to to repair the planet, to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. We're running against a clock, so we should have a clock, right? And we created one. First, we, rec we created it because Greta Thunberg asked us for a clock. Nine days before her famous speech at the UN, she reached out to an NGO that knew that we were interested in a clock, a climate clock type project, but they'd never given us any money to build it. So nine days before her speech, they sent us a message, Greta wants a clock. And we're like, really? We could have built a lot of these last year if you had only given us some money to do it. So we're like, but it's Greta. All right. And we just rolled into action, called up our electrical engineer friend and our product designer friend and our website builder friend and you know pulled everyone together, person who calculates uh, scientific algorithms and such, <laughs> and pulled us all together and built a clock in nine days for Greta Thunberg. This was about four years ago when she came to the US, remember, in a, the solar-powered boat across the Atlantic. And we used the, you know, there was some debate about how uh, there's lots of numbers out there and which ones we were going to cook down to sort of tell the story most effectively. All data is valid. It's just sort of, you know, what risk tolerances and whether you're pointing at what, trying to stay under 1.5 or 2.0 and da, da 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 Went with her, the numbers that she wanted from the, well, it's the IPCC, you know, gold standard of climate science, but also this uh, climate institute in Berlin that is the foremost authority on cli our remaining climate budget, what's called a climate budget. So we created a clock that keeps track of how we're running, how much time we have left before we burn through our climate budget. And the climate budget is how much carbon we can release into the atmosphere and still stay under 1.5 degrees centigrade. And it's a fixed amount. And then if you figure out our emission rate per year, well, then you can calculate how much time we have before we burned that much carbon, which is too much carbon. So that's the number that goes on the clock. It's currently six and a half years. 
If we reduce our emissions rate, you know, we can put more time on that clock. And then we added solution pathways to that clock. So it's not just tracking our deadline, but our lifelines, you know, and the most important solution pathway that the clock tracks is the percentage of the world's energy currently coming from renewable, solar, wind, uh, geothermal, tidal, et cetera. And that's at 13.5% approximately and going in the right direction. We need it to get it to 100% or as close to 100% as we can, but it is not going up fast enough. You know, we need that number to get up to 100% renewables, ideally by the end of this decade, which is about the six and a half years on the clock, or at least as close to that as we possibly can. So this is a, it's a mission statement that's ticking in real time and tracking our progress that we absolutely must you know, accomplish. So it tells us what we need to do by when. The big versions up in New York and other cities like Seoul and Rome and, and, and other cities, London, and the small versions are in the hands of Greta Thunberg type activists all over the world who use them to march into the president's office or bring them to climate conferences or carry them through the streets at big mobilizations, you know, hand them to, you know, one is, was handed to the governor of Washington, Ensley, using it as an accountability tool, trying to get all the stakeholders on the time frame that we need to be on. So that's the Climate Clock Project, and it has global significance. It, can, it could help to reset the global timeline to the timeline that science tells us is necessary, which is different than what people like to say, oh, we have until 2050, etc. So I love the clock. I, I understand the need for deadlines and aspirations, but I'm also a firm believer that climate change is already affecting us. It's happening yeah, sure. constantly. It's getting worse all the time. It snowed here again today in Camas, Washington. It wasn't supposed to. We broke a record last month. It's the end of March already. It's still snowing. When I moved here, they told me it snows once every five years. Yep. It snowed five times in the first year I've been here. Global weirding, climate chaos. Yes, exactly. My buddies in New York say it hasn't really snowed at all in New York. That's correct. So it's already happening. And to me, there's no falling off the edge of the cliff. It's just worse and worse and worse. The longer we take, the worse yes. it gets. And at some point, it gets so bad that maybe there's no coming back from it. I think that... I shouldn't say I think that we're going to make it because it all depends on my conversation that I have most recently, yeah. and now I'm starting to doubt that we can make it. Yeah, so that's uh, that's true, and so this is one of the contradictions or paradoxes that we are in, and that I wrote the book to get back to that original question to hold the paradox and uh, the many paradoxes that we have to sort of live out right now. One of the most important of those is the question of you know that that we all ask ourselves, uh, any of us who think about this, is is it too late? right? Is it too late? And you're alluding to that. And in the book, I, you know, basically say it's too late-ish, right? It's too late-ish. So it means it's too late for certain things, but not too late for other things, right? So it's too late, probably too late to stay under 1.5, right? It's too late to claw back the species that we've lost. Some of the species we will lose because of the, of the stress we have put on the, the biosphere. It's too late maybe to not lose some or all of the Great Barrier Reef, you know, and you can go down the list, but it is not too late to bend that emissions curve in a way that we do, you know, manage to survive on a, on a somewhat scarred planet and find a, a way to live more in harmony with the natural environment in a, in a more sustainable, humbled kind of way. It's not too late. It's, and it's also never too late for any of us to do the right thing. You know, it's never too late to act with kindness, right? It's never too late to be a good neighbor. It's never too late to act in defense of people in the planet. It's never too late to be in solidarity with indigenous people 
trying to protect their ancestral homelands from a pipeline that's threatening to pollute their aquifer. Yeah. So there's ways in which, yes, it's too late-ish, and it's also never too late. And those are both true, right? They're both true. And we need to hold each one of those in one hand as we step forward into our uncertain future. That's just the only way to be honest and also ethical, right? Very much so. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that the book tries to tackle. Like, you can work as an activist and say, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. But then there's all these, you know, complicated feelings and doubts and contradictions you're navigating. So the book tried to take a step sideways and just look at all those things and articulate them so people would recognize that, oh, I'm not alone in feeling this dilemma. I'm not alone in navigating this contradiction. I'm not crazy. I'm not any more fraught than anyone else is. Some of these are internal. We need to find a way to stay grounded amidst some of that back and forth inside us. And then we also have to find a way to navigate. Yeah, we need to like, we need to make this transition as fast and, and as big as we possibly can, because we, we, we didn't do it 20 and 30 years ago. But we also need to center justice in that. Sometimes those can work in concert. Sometimes it takes time to get justice right. So there's, there's tensions uh, out in the external world, in the structure of this crisis and the structure of, of our attempt to remedy it. Yeah, that's what the book gets into. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. I felt that completely. So you did a really good job getting that across. Great. You've been an activist a long time. What setback sticks out as the most difficult? I mean, I spent a lot of years working on attempts to basically fulfill the promise of the founding fathers, or even though that was very imperfect at the time, but to fulfill that aspiration of functioning democracy, right? A democracy of one person, one vote. And, you know, at the time it was only white male property owners over, you know, over 21. But, you know, there was the built in that aspiration that the people who live here would have equal power over our governance, right? So I worked very hard on trying to reduce the power that money, that big money plays in our elections, our, our American democracy. And yeah, deliver on the promise of that it's really the voters that decide. We did that in many, many, many ways, many videos, creative projects, uh, most notably this satirical media campaign that ran for almost 10 years in various forms. Uh, most notably, I guess in 2004 was its peak, uh, Billionaires for Bush. And it was a sort of fake organization of, of wealthy people. You know, we dressed up in tuxedos and Texan oil man hats and gowns and, and and tiaras and that kind of thing and protested in favor of big money owning the elections. And, you know, we paid for four more years and, uh, you know, <laughs> we want four more wars and, you know, this kind of thing. I'm laughing and I'm crying. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and there, we had a million billionaire march as opposed to the million man march, you know, all this kind of stuff. We auctioned off social security on eBay. You know, we did a lot of, a lot of these kind of pranks. And, but basically that was a great success in terms of uh, getting media attention and creating a model of, of a very creative, artistic way of doing politics. So there was a great success in that way. But in the end, you know, feel very defeated by the attempt to reform the electoral system. Citizens United passed and there's unlimited money washing around. And, you know, a lot of it is dark money and the powers that be really jammed the system so that they could keep wielding influence through through money, uh, through big money. And, you know, the, if you look at the voter versus money, that battle has not been won. And that disappoints me greatly because it's so who's right and who's wrong there is just so obvious. And we should win that battle. And maybe we will eventually. But 
I feel a little heartbroken that we weren't able to, we made some reforms in this state and that way, and we passed a little you know, legislation, but it was always undone by other legislation or by a Supreme Court decision. And the only thing that's really held out again is the small do- dollar fundraising that the internet enabled was a sort of a counterbalancing, you know? So it's like Bernie Sanders saying, you know, my average, you know, on the debate stage and whatever it was, 2016, the average donation is $27, you know? And so that, that sort of like aggregating lots of small donors to sort of hold their own against the big money, but they shouldn't have to do that. Shouldn't have to do that. There should be public financing of any credible election candidate. And we have that in New York City and some other states, but not nationally. Um, and it hurts. So there's a, there's a defeat. You talk about these issues in general that you've been an activist for. And when I was young, I wasn't aware of all that. And I loved the United States and what I believed about it. No one told me that money was buying elections. I was young and I thought only the best of the world and our country, especially. And of course, I've learned how things really work over time. And what's interesting to me is that although they're our best hope, the children of today, my kids, I have two kids in their 20s, they want to make a difference, but they really got very few years of not understanding what was really going on. Very young ages, they were willing to make sacrifices then I didn't even know were sacrifices I should think about until my 30s or 40s. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, and you were like, lived in this sort of, you had an, a decade or two of innocence. Yes. Where you could believe in the idealized vision, you know, version of, of things. I was disabused of a lot of that and, you know, in my college years. And so this led to my longer history of causes that maybe you got a chance to do, but you, you had this lovely moment of innocence, but it's quite an awakening whenever it happens at whatever age it happens. It's quite an awakening, you know, and sometimes you, you, you know, you might get a history teacher in sixth grade who might just kind of shake some of those assumptions, you know, and really talk about slavery, you know, and how it's embedded in the American system, you know, or talk about how it was only after fight, after fight, after fight, the civil war, the suffragette movement, you know, the youth movement in the sixties that we were able to expand the franchise always against entrenched power or entrenched you know, castes that were doing well that didn't want to share the vote, say. Uh, yeah. So sometimes it might be a history teacher in sixth grade that kind of pops that bubble. And sometimes it might just be a, a Watergate scandal, right? Or it might be the Iraq war. Wait, millions of people are in the streets. Wait, all this evidence was faked and yet we went to war, you know? So, it, you know, for it, it might be that. Or, you know, it might be the 1619 report being published, you know, and you read that and you're like, like we can't think of America without understanding the foundational aspect of slavery in America. You know, you can't dis- disassociate the two. There's not some glorious 1776 moment. No, like 1619 is the, you know, when it's just like always there. And that's how the country was built on that foundation and, you know, whatever. So, you know, these, the awakening happens in different ways, you know, or you, you have a black friend who tells you, dude, it's not how you think it is, you know? My grandfather came here in the early 20th century. Yeah, mine too. His moment that he talks about, he was so pro everything. He loved it here, loved it. And then there was the prohibition and he wasn't a big drinker, so he didn't care that much. But then there was a big story that broke in pictures to show that alcohol was being delivered to the White House. And it was such a have and have not, like you have a law. And 
he kind of understood that if foreign dignitaries are visiting, maybe you want to serve them some wine. But one rule for the masses, one rule for the rulers, right? That that just sticks. That stinks. Exactly. And that broke it for him. Yeah. That broke it for yeah. him. No, that's fair. Yeah. Well, my grandparents on my mom's side came over uh, around that same time, 1914 from Romania, settled in the Lower East Side, at Brooklyn and the Lower East Side. And um, yeah, so some, maybe there's a similar... You know, the other side had been been here for centuries, whatever. But, uh, you know, that similar immigrant story. Changing the topic just a little bit. When you look out at the future, 10, 20, 30 years out, and I know in your book, you were very, let's look at the different scenarios because a lot of things could happen. Yeah, there's a lot of different scenarios laid out. Yep. But in your heart or, or in your logical mind, <laughs> you decide where are we 20, 30 years from now as a planet? With the gallows humor point of view, one of the ways I describe the, you know, say four scenarios is like bad, badish, really bad, and really, really bad. You know, that's just a joke, but there's some truth in that joke. You know, I went on a quest and talked to people wiser, wiser than me, people who've been sitting with this question or realization that we were in for some kind of catastrophe and, and getting their, you know, sitting, they'd been sitting with it longer and had come to, you know, had thought more deeply about it than I had. And I went to them for wisdom. And the, one of the questions I would ask them is, so are we in for collapse or transition? And yes, there's the extinction possibility, which is the farther out, you know, but let's just say we're not going to, it's not going to be as bad as that. And and there's, there's also the business as usual scenario, but that's, you know, we can logically uh, argue that that can't continue as is. So let's just say there's a so let's say there's four four scenarios, you know, a, a business as usual, somewhat of a difficult transition to this new energy system and, and, and new way of a new orientation to the natural world, uh, a collapse of civilization, a collapse of society and unraveling, and then an extinction. So let's say those are our four qualitatively different scenarios. Let's take extinction and business as usual off the table because uh, they're outliers uh, or one's an outlier and we know that one is non-viable. So we're left with collapse or transition. And I would ask these folks, are we in for a collapse or tradition? And most people would say both, right? They would say both. And they had different ways of saying that both. One of the people I talked to, uh, one of the leading voices in the climate justice and environmental justice movement, Gopal Dayaneni, based in Oakland, uh, argued that transition would happen in the teeth of collapse. You know, there would be these moments, we're not falling off a cliff, but we're having this sort of staged descent where we sort of have a crisis and, you know, the food prices go up or certain parts of the world, you know, the climate climate refugees are forced to migrate from their regions that are no longer habitable or they can't grow food anymore, or there's an energy crunch or some of these ecological limits we're running up against show up economically. And there's a, there's a crunch, there's a crisis, there's a shock, uh, there's a slide. And it's at those moments when there's, when the system is trying to find new footing that that's where we need to contest over the solutions. That's the moment where things will be in play. And the, the fossil fuel industry or, or certain allegiances, certain blocks of capital will want to have it go one way. And then conscious, organized people power will want it to land in a different way, to have more democracy, more justice, rather than a, a solutions dictated by concentrated wealth, right? And so he will say that these moments are contested so that the transition will happen as we have these moments of unraveling and refinding our footing in this sort of staged descent till we hit a, a plateau where we can have a more sustainable uh, society uh, with the less of an eco footprint, you know, kind of thing. So that's one way uh, things will play out. And I think that 
you know, I'm not sure if that's the answer to your question, but that feels like from a top level point of view, that feels like how it's going to play out to me. So we're not going to be wiped off the planet. We'll lose a lot of species. There'll be a lot of loss. There'll be a lot of mourning. There'll be a lot of suffering, but there'll be a lot of innovation. And a lot of it will be coming from movements and from the grassroots and not all dictated by capital and by technocrats. So it'll be this sort of mixture of things. And we will stumble our way towards something that will be maybe better in some ways and more more challenging in other ways. So, yeah. So that was a very good answer. It really was. It really was. Obviously, you spent a lot of time thinking about that for your book. And it makes me, along with another part of your book that I really enjoyed that I read, really want to recommend this book to people because I've done like 140 episodes now. I've asked that question. I rarely get an answer anywhere near that. I think I've ever had an answer that good, that complete in thought. And I agree with you. There'll be times when it feels like it's total unraveling, but then we'll resettle and it'll feel like we're just transitioning based on the latest event to happen. That really makes a lot of sense to me. Excellent. The chapter that I really enjoyed was the one on, should we have kids? Because when I was growing up and I got married, it was just assumed that if you are, and you have this right in the book, just like I think about it, you're happy, you meet the right person, you yeah. have the economic right. ability to have a child, right. you have a child, that's what you do. And now it's a big concern for people when they look yeah. at the world and say, do I wanna bring a child into this world? It's very different and I appreciated that you talked about that in the book, so thank you. You bet, it's on a lot of people's minds when I'm, you know, as I say, I've been doing these events across the country and I ask people, very early in the event, just so people get grounded in their own thoughts and feels and connect with each other. Uh, what is the hardest thing about climate change for you? You know, what's the hardest thing for you? What's the most difficult, toughest thing at whatever level? There's all sorts of things come up. But one of the things that came up uh, in Chicago, which was, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin now. So, so a couple of days ago I was in Chicago. One woman was saying, my child doesn't want to have children. And that was just like, it was just a sort of striking thing. And everyone in the room was sort of, you know, davening, was nodding along with her, you know, sort of feeling what she was saying. And um, that comes up a lot. And um, yeah, the, the, the chapter in the book sort of, again, it doesn't take a position. It doesn't arguing a hard position. It's more stepping through all the, the thoughts and feelings and multiple voices that on that question and many different answers. The same person I was talking about with the shocks and slides and navigating that and contesting over the solutions, Gopal Dayan, he has two kids. He's as clear-eyed about the dark future ahead of us as anyone, but he has two kids. They're great kids. I've met them. After our interview, we all had dinner together you know, with, with his two kids and his, his labor organizer wife. And he talks about his kids as like, it's a pretty bad survival strategy for the species to not have kids. You know, That was one just <laughs> yeah. sort of interesting thing that he said. Then there's like, how do you raise your kids given that we're raising them in an era of climate breakdown and climate emergency. Well, you raise them to be warriors. You know, you raise them to be as honest at the appropriate ages as you can about our situation and to be part of the solution as much as they can be, right? So that's a lot of people sort of said that. So it's a very complex question. It's very emotional, a very emotional and very philosophical question. Do you have any advice for people that are listening or watching this podcast about how to help mitigate climate change? Yes. Well, I would say two things. One is, you know, there's a way in which we've been told 
when we're like, oh, what can I do? And everyone thinks about their personal individual carbon footprint, right? And let's just be clear that the whole idea, the phrase of carbon footprint was actually created by a PR company, Ogilvy, hired by one of the big fossil fuel companies, and I'm forgetting which one, it might've been Exxon, but it was hired by them to turn this solution to this problem that the fossil fuel companies were benefiting from and knew about and knew what destruction would be caused. And they predicted it very accurately 50 years ago to exactly the level of warming we have now, um, but decided to try to obfuscate things as much as possible in order to keep being able to pull their reserves out of the ground and burn it, even if it meant destroying the planet. So they came up with the term carbon footprint, right? I think it's important for us to do whatever we can at the individual level, bike more, you know, more of a plant-based diet, put solar on our roof, all of these things, recycle, all that stuff's important. But we must acknowledge that we've been told that that is the sufficient answer and it is nowhere near sufficient. We need to join movements. We need to find our people. We need to transform our communities. We need new and much more radical policies to transition us, you know, like Green New Deal level policies, climate resiliency plans for every community to transition ourselves off of fossil fuels to renewables and make our communities resilient in the face of the impacts that are coming our way. So things to do at the individual level, community level, state, national, global. Yes, do what you can as an individual, but join a movement and make make sure we're making changes at the scale and speed of the problem. And then I'll just share the solution that is inspiring me the most right now that I think people can do in their own cities or their own version of it. And that's coming out of El Paso and a citizen-led initiative led by young activists of color uh, allied with the Sunrise Movement, but involving all sectors of the community, are trying to pass what's called a climate charter. And that uh, has many provisions, appointing a chief resiliency officer, transitioning the El Paso to 80% renewables by 2030, et cetera, but most notably ensuring what's called water sovereignty, that the water underneath the city limits of El Paso should be for the residents of El Paso. Pretty obvious thing, but currently it's not. Uh, you know, that's an arid region of the country and under pressure from increasing drought, it's a, a matter of survival. Water is life, right? That water should be for drinking and the other uh, needs of the city of El Paso. But right now, 40 billion gallons of the water that's sitting underneath El Paso is being used to frack the Permian Basin and pull up out of the ground fossil fuels that if we want the planet to survive, to be supportive of human life, need to stay in the ground. So by claiming water sovereignty over their own water, they're not only ensuring their survival as a community, but they are denying a key resource that the worst, most harmful actors need to do the most harmful thing. So it's a great yes and a no. And it's citizen-led and uh, it's a beautiful package of a solution and other cities could be doing their own version of it, whether they're in the desert or whether they have a big oil field to the west or the east of them, you know. So that's just an inspiring example to me. Is there anything else you wanted to say that my questions didn't give you a chance to say? Uh, I will just tell your listening audience where to find out more about the book. There's a website that goes with the book called bettercatastrophe.com. And it's got the basic stuff about the book, but then it's uh, also got uh, samples of the from the book that you can read if you uh, want to sample before you buy kind of thing. So you can read you know various excerpts. It's got this big flowchart that I think you maybe mentioned, uh, this flowchart of our climate predicament, which I bring to events, an 18-foot 
wide by five foot high uh, banner of a, of a huge flowchart. It's the biggest flowchart anyone's ever seen. Everyone says, uh, and I put it up on the wall and I go on a climate journey through our predicament. So that's a, there's a downloadable version of that on the, on the website. And then the whole schedule of tour stops and there's still many, many to go, particularly in the West of the country, Vancouver, Seattle, the Bay Area, LA, and a bunch of other cities in between. So anyone who you know wants to hear the book read out loud or traipse through this huge flow charter, it's like I put on a stand-up tragedy, what I call stand-up tragedy show. So it's a whole one-man show around the book. It's not just a boring book reading. It's actually interactive, fun, multimedia, and very, very, very funny. At least last night's show in Madison, 100 people came and it was, it was we were all laughing a lot of the time and crying at the same time. So I call it stand-up tragedy. Um, it felt like this topic was worthy of a new genre to capture all the elements and hold the tragedy with humor, right? You know, hold, it makes it more more bearable to leaven the data with with a laugh. Anyone listening who's, you know, has a climate network or climate group in locally uh, could partner with us to help get the word out and you could bring some leaflets to it and use it as an organizing moment. So bettercatastrophe.com, that's what I wanted to uh, share. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. It's a commandment that we all had at birth, and that is that we have to try to protect the earth. I know you're going to be on your tour. You're going there and back, and you're trying to do it almost entirely on Amtrak. We hear the sound. It's a tick and a tock. You're the guy who did the CEO thing for the climate clock. Incredible. It's obvious we're going to be scarred, but we're going to survive. At least that's our wish. But, you know, we're kind of too late, but maybe just too late-ish. I am super excited. I have to offer you my thanks. You made me laugh by talking about your billionaire Bush pranks. <laughs> you talked about your activist friend and that he did have a kid. And I looked in your book for the chapter and you did include it. Yes, that you did. Listen, you and I, were about to turn 60, so we're both self-employed. Climate change has us both very annoyed. Talking to you has made me overjoyed, even though we both think we're headed to the void. Thank you so much, Andrew Boyd. That was fantastic. That was fantastic. Wow, that was quite a discussion. And Andrew's book is quite a read. Packed with grief, hope, and gallows humor, an incredibly honest, well-researched, and easy-to-understand look into where the human race is headed. During many passages, Andrew was inside my head. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. And check out my new YouTube channel. Just search for The Climate Champions and Lee Krivat. Andrew was pretty clear that the individual, while being able to help by eating gentler on the planet, conserving energy, maybe investing in solar and an EV, should not stop there. We must all engage with organizations fighting hard to change the rules of the game if we want to avoid the worst and help to mitigate 
climate change.